Uh, we are starting off a series in Isaiah chapter 6, so you can turn there with me. Uh, before we get into this, though, I want to acknowledge John and Gail Hutchinson, who are with us this morning. John and Gail, if you'd please stand. Um, faithful, faithful servants of God, uh, serving with Wycliffe. And after this service, we have a missions lunch. And here's the deal, it's free food, which we all know that lingo in the Baptist setting, right? So uh, we invite you to join us. They're going to share more of their ministry, and uh, we're just so thankful for these two. So we're in Isaiah chapter 6 in this series I am calling Renovate. This theme has been very special on my heart as I've been considering it. It is a very significant spiritual theme in the scriptures, Renovate, of course, carries with it the idea of renewing, reinvigorating. If you look at the macro story of the Bible, you'll see something incredible about God. Uh, he, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, he's wearing the hat of a creator. He's a builder. He's calling everything that we know into existence, creato ex nihilo. We go into Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, everything starts crumbling there, and God has to change hats. Instead of wearing the creator hat, he puts on the renovator hat. I like that because, you know, God didn't start all over again. Instead, he took this creation that we had destroyed, and he said, you know what, I'm going to make this even better. That's the kind of God that we worship, and we're going to see that as we look at Isaiah. We're looking at chapters 6 through 12. There are a couple of themes that really emerge in Isaiah that I think are very important for us as the people of God. The first is what we're going to see is there are three portraits of the Messiah that we're told about in the book of Isaiah. If you look at chapters 1 through 37, you'll see that the Messiah is the king, if you look at chapters 38 to 55, he is the servant. And then in chapters 58 through 66, he is the anointed conqueror. Now, in Isaiah's day, uh, they couldn't really conceive of what did that mean and what would that look like. This side of the cross and the resurrection, we know a little bit more of Jesus being the suffering servant, and, uh, and we know that he's coming back and he's going to be the conqueror and he's going to rule everything. You see, another thing that I see in the book of Isaiah is that this book provides us with much-needed perspective when we are feeling pessimistic about the future. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I hear a lot of pessimism today. And I hear it in the news, I hear it in the political discourse, as I'm out in the community, if I'm at the local breakfast joints or lunch joints, you hear a lot of pessimism. You also hear a lot of pessimism in the church amongst believers. You hear a lot of pessimism around pastors, and I hear pessimism in myself in my own thought life. So I think we all need a renovation in this area. We need hope. We need to renew our faith in the promises of God. And we're going to see in this book of Isaiah that God is not a pessimistic God. He's a hope-filled God. And he promises great things to us in the scriptures. So we pick up 
with a rather ominous situation. Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1, it tells us this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, you have to understand that the people of Israel have a lot of hope built into this Davidic dynasty. They believe that there's always going to be a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, that that was God's promise to them. And what is happening right now in Isaiah, you never hear a a time period being inaugurated by saying, this is when someone died. It's always inaugurated when this is when someone was presently ruling. This took place in this time frame. So Isaiah is telling us something here, that God is doing something. In fact, I want to kind of begin with this first point, which is that renovation begins with demolition. The people of Israel, they've been enjoying economic prosperity. You could even think of it as in a golden era. And this little phrase right here is telling us that this is the end of an era. And it started from the top and it flowed down. King Uzziah, if we were to summarize his life, you could summarize it like this, started well, ended poorly. I've studied a lot about leadership in the scriptures and history. I watch it in current events. And I got to say, that theme is very common, started well, ended poorly. I think about that theme a lot that tends to happen in leadership. And one of the significant reasons that leaders tend to fail, that they end poorly, is because of pride. If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 26, the story tells us that Uzziah is like overcome with pride. He goes into the temple of the Lord and he offers incense at the incense altar. Now, if you know anything about this priestly system that the Lord's established, that is a big no-no. So the priest, Azariah, goes to Uzziah and he says, what are you doing? You got to get out of here. You are playing with fire right now. And the Bible says Uzziah became enraged And in that moment of rage, a leprosy broke out on his face. Now, here's the deal. Here you have this king. He starts well. He's leading this nation along. He can do no wrong. And he leads the rest of his life dying a painful, humiliating death. Do you remember what I said about pride? Pride makes you stupid. It makes you do stupid things. And what we come to find with God is God is not impressed. He's not impressed with our accomplishments and our stock portfolios and our job titles or whatever else we think makes us impressive. Maybe it's the car I drive or the house I live in, whatever it is. The Bible tells us over and over again that the kind of leader that God is looking for is a humble leader. See, the humble leader derives their significance from the Lord. A humble leader obeys the Lord. Why is this time period significant for Isaiah? Well, I think that God is not only working in the nation of Judah, but he's working in the heart of Isaiah the prophet. I get the sense that Isaiah had a lot of his hope tied up in this Davidic dynasty, that 
he had become to feel more secure in the promise of God rather than the promise maker himself. They have this saying in the investment world, when the tide goes out, you can tell who has been swimming naked. It's a good little phrase. It kind of sticks with you, doesn't it? it? When you think about a business, those who have been swimming naked are those who have not been leveraging debt well. They've been overextending themselves. They got so like excited about the growth phase of the company that they put all of this money into the growth phase. But what tends to happen in an economy? Well, economies experience recessions. So the companies that have been holding cash reserves, who have been economically sound with their money, they're the ones that hold up in that time of recession. Think about it spiritually now. What happens to your faith, to your security, your sense of well-being and peace when the tide goes out in life? I've uh, noticed that there really is only ever one factor that prepares a person for those kinds of seasons and carries a person through those kinds of seasons, and it is that they have cultivated an intimate personal relationship with God. It's not just a box that they check. It's not just a transactional relationship where I do things for God and I expect God to do things for me. It is a personal relationship. I know him. I know what he's like. He's been involved in my life, and, and I've pursued him, and I've followed him. And when the tide goes out, it doesn't mean that that person's life is easy in the moment, but it means that they know without a shadow of a doubt that God is who he says he is. He's faithful. And what does it look like to have that kind of relationship with God? I was reading about Bill Bright, I shared a story about him several months ago. I had the joy of attending his memorial service and hearing what kind of man he was. This story, there was a researcher going around the country, and they were interviewing significant Christian leaders, whether in the nonprofit realm or in the church realm, and they had a series of questions they were asking these leaders and this researcher said that after flying all over the country, he was largely unimpressed with the answers that these significant leaders were giving him. That was until, of course, he had an interaction with Bill Bright. He said Dr. Bright was the kind of guy when he's talking to you who looks you in the eye, who seemed to be genuinely interested in the conversation he was impressed with the answers that he was giving to his questions, but most of all, he was impressed with the way that Dr. Bright responded to the last question. He simply asked him this, what does Jesus mean to you? And he said this large, impressive, significant, influential man sitting behind a big desk in a big chair could not even form words to answer the question. He just sat there and wept in his chair thinking about what Jesus means to him. Let me just ask you what, do you, what do you think has to have taken place in that man's world for that to be his response to that question? I mean, it's clearly a guy who has met with Jesus not only in his mind, but in his heart. He has developed a relationship with him. I 
in my experience, know that someone has really undergone renovation when they have experienced God in a deeply personal way. And Isaiah does this. You'll see it in verses 1 through 7. He has this very personal interaction with God. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. And you know the implication there is the real king versus the king who's just died the Lord of hosts. It's interesting when you think about this process of renovation. Renovation begins with demolition. And if God is going to do a work of demolition in a group of people, that work tends to start with the individual first. When you think about the process of demolition, you are tearing something down in order to replace that with something better. God had to demolish certain things in Isaiah's worldview. In fact, three things, and I believe that he needs to demolish these three things in all of our worldviews. You'll notice the first thing he had to demolish. He has to demolish the view of God in each one of us. You see, when you think about who God is, all of us hold a view of God that is far inferior to the reality. Isaiah, you're thinking of a guy who probably held a high view of God. We are told in the background of his life that he was a prophet even before this moment. He's like doing religion as a profession. He talks about God. He thinks about God. He probably had an incredibly high view of God. And yet, when he encountered the real deal, boy, his view was underwhelming. It just wasn't adequate. You get the sense that Isaiah's real ministry started on this day. Now, how do we learn just how incredible God is? Well, a couple of things in this text point us in that direction. I think to begin to grasp him, we have to take a moment to examine the creatures that are surrounding him here. They are seraphim. That word in the Hebrew means burning ones. I like how Kent Hughes describes them. He says there are flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. You have these angelic beings singing to God. How many of them are there? Well, Isaiah doesn't tell us, but if we cross-reference over to John's vision in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 11, there are millions of these angels surrounding God. If you were to stand in the presence of one of these angels, you would feel like you were looking at a lowercase g God. And yet, the text tells us that the uppercase g God 
overwhelms them, outclasses them in every single way. These angels are covering their face. They're not worthy of looking at him. They're covering their feet. They're not worthy of standing in his presence. And they are gladly, joyfully singing to this God. They're repeating the same refrain over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They are stretching the confines of language in an attempt to describe the holiness of God. You see, the Hebrew language, when it wants to tell us that something's unparalleled, unrivaled, we talk of that as being the superlative. It's the best of the best. They repeat a word. So if you were to say a king had the most gold, that king had gold, gold. Or if a king was compassionate, compassionate, he was more compassionate than all the other kings. But notice here that they're not repeating the word. They're saying the word three times. They're stretching the confines of language. They're saying God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the scriptures that this is done. It's like they're saying, he's holy times infinity. Now, what does this word holy mean? Well, some people would suggest that holy means sinless, blameless, but it can't mean that because in this text, we have angels who are sinless and blameless covering their faces and their feet in the presence of God. So the best definition I've heard about holiness is that holiness is God's distinctiveness. Holiness is the supreme truth about God. It separates God from everything else. A.W. Tozer wrote this about God. He said that we must not think of God as highest in ascending order of beings starting with the single cell and going up from there to the fish, to the bird, to the animal, to man, to angel, to cherub, to God. He says, God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. You see what Isaiah is showing us what A.W. Tozer is showing us. God is in a class all his own. You know why we struggle with describing God and why our words always fall far short? Because he is the infinite and we are the finite. It's impossible for the finite to adequately describe the infinite. He is holy. Now, Isaiah standing in the presence of this God, cries out, woe is me. And that's because our unrealistic view of ourselves also needs to be demolished. We think so highly of ourselves, and yet when we stand in the presence of a being like God, we can only cry out, woe is me. Now the meaning behind that expression is Isaiah was convinced that he was about to die. He's standing in the presence of these angelic beings more powerfully in the presence of God. And he's like, I got no place being here right now. I'm about to die in this presence. When you stand in the presence 
of a holy God, not only does the tide go out, the tide evaporates. There's nothing covering you. Paul said this in Romans 3. He said, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. We tell ourselves a lie in this culture, and I believe every culture before us has told themselves the same lie. And the lie goes something like this, I'm basically a good person. Now, the reason that we can tell ourselves this lie is because it's not an objective lie. It's a lie that we create by placing ourselves on a sliding scale of morality, and it always works out in our favor. If I want to tell myself I'm a good person and I've just done something really, really bad, all I have to do is say to myself, well, at least you're not Hitler, and uh, you've come out pretty good, because when I compare myself to the worst human being in world history, of course I look pretty good. But then I could just as easily counter that and say, but you're no Mother Teresa either. You see, the sliding scale of morality falls apart when you ask the question, what is the worst sin that a human could commit? I ask that question a lot, and you get different answers. Oh, it's genocide, it's racism, it's murder. That's not the worst sin. Those sins all flow from the worst sin. The worst sin that every human has committed is denying God in your life. It's living what is called practical atheism. The scriptures call it ungodliness. It's living moment by moment, day by day, for extended amounts of time as if God doesn't exist. Think about it. The creator of the universe who gave you everything, the creator of the universe who sustains you second by second, moment by moment, each breath you take, each step you take, you have lived an ungrateful life towards him. You haven't acknowledged him. And he is infinitely supreme in dignity and value. That's the worst sin. And Isaiah, he's standing in the presence of God and he's overwhelmed with this realization in his heart and his soul. He's got nowhere to run. And it's in that place where God does what only God can do. He extends grace. You look at verses 6 and 7. Tell me you don't see grace there. God sends a seraphim to grab a coal from the altar, and the seraphim touches Isaiah's mouth, cleansing him, and the language says, your guilt is taken away, your sins atoned for. Without that cleansing presence of God, we are like Isaiah, we are ruined We've got nowhere to run. The tide has evaporated. I'm standing there naked before a holy God. But God comes with his covering presence, his healing presence, his antidote of grace. Obviously, we know as believers this side of the cross that Christ is the ultimate example of that, the ultimate way that God has paid for our sins he lived the life that I couldn't live. He died in my place, rose again from the dead. The scriptures say, if like Isaiah, I'm willing to allow God to heal me, that God will come and heal me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's his grace. Now, 
As we move forward, we look at verse 8, and this is the first time that the Lord himself speaks in Isaiah 6. And he says this, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? What I love about this interaction is this is the first time that God's speaking in the text. Isaiah's just been forgiven. And a lot of us build a religious system where if God's like forgiven me, I still need to do penitence. God, I need to crawl through like 10 miles of glass before I'm worthy of you at this point. But that's not how God operates. Grace is the idea that you can't earn God's forgiveness. He just forgives you and you just embrace it. And what he does instead of telling Isaiah to crawl through glass is he says, I got a job for you, buddy, and I need you to do something for me. And I love Isaiah's response. He's so eager. He's like, oh, here am I. Send me. I I remember that feeling in life. Maybe you can relate to this. When you first got that sense of God's overwhelming presence and you got the sense that God was calling you to do something bigger than yourself and you're so eager and enthusiastic about it all and naive because you're dreaming and you're thinking, oh man, God's going to do all these incredible great things in and through me. Still got to work on that pride, doesn't he? Ministry is all going to be glowing reviews, glowing success. They're going to write books about what I'm going to do for God. Let me just say this. There's not half as many books written about the number of people who have had a call to ministry. Ministry is hard. It's challenging. Here we go, Isaiah. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Let me paraphrase that for you. Isaiah, I've got a really important call for you to fulfill. I need you to go to a people that don't give a rip about what you're going to say, they're going to often not show up to even hear you. And when you do speak, it's just going to settle in their callousness more deeply. And that is going to be one of my judgment upon them. Anybody interested in that ministry assignment? Here am I, God send me. I'm glad I didn't know, right? In advance, well, God's telling Isaiah here. You see, There are so many ministry assignments that are that. There are many churches across America where that is the call. There are many callings into the mission field where you will go and you will preach the gospel for decades, and you might not single a single instance of fruit. Ministry is not always glowing reviews. And I think there's another truth that we need to see in the text. It turns out that the people of God can be like this people, Judah, at any time. This isn't like a specially calloused group of people. People can head in this trajectory at any time, at any place. I was thinking about a preacher that I've read a lot about, a preacher who was you know, very instrumental in the Christian movement in New England several years back. Now, this preacher 
he started experiencing problems with his church. The conflict kind of began with his salary, and then it kind of moved into his leadership style. They said, you know, this guy focuses too much on the preaching side of things and the teaching side of things. He could be a little more compassionate and pay more attention to us. And then, you know, the, you know how they say, like, the goalposts shift, right? So the critique moved from there, and they called together this big congregational meeting, and they said, we're really disturbed that he's not allowing unbelievers to enter into the membership. So here's this preacher. He's been at this church for 23 years. He's 46 years old now, and his congregation votes him out. They fire him on the spot. You know what his name was? Jonathan Edwards, and he's fired in the middle of this great phenomenon that we call the Great Awakening in New England, where thousands of hearts are being renovated across this landscape because these people's hearts had grown calloused and dull to the things of God. The author of Hebrews warns us, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I think the spiritual principle we can extrapolate from Hebrews is that the best time to be proactive about seeking God and listening to God and following God is today as opposed to tomorrow. Why is it a bad idea to wait till tomorrow to actively, proactively seek God? Well, one, you do not have tomorrow guaranteed. But two... Scripture talks about this quiet, subtle process where my heart can grow cold to the things of God. I like to think of it as the death by 1,000 paper cuts. It's a 1,000 little decisions that I'm making along the way, and eventually I'm just like, you know what? I don't care about this stuff anymore. I want to go live my life. Paul says it happened to Demas in the book of 2 Timothy. He was in love with the things of the world. He just kind of wanders off. Now notice that the author of Hebrews says, you need one another. That the way that we kind of prevent this process from taking place in our heart is you need to encourage one another. So church is not a lifestyle choice. Church is a necessity and I need to be regularly with the people of God if I don't want to put myself in this dangerous position. Now, Isaiah is hearing all of these things from the Lord, and I think his response seems pretty appropriate. He's like, how long, God? You know, how long is it going to be like this? Like, I want to preach to a congregation where everyone wants to listen to what I'm saying, and where, you know, there's hundreds of baptisms. That's the kind of preaching ministry I want, God. And the Lord says, look, it's not going to look like that for you. Look at verses 11 to 13. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people 
far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Here's something you've got to learn about God. God is not a quarterly earnings result God. Okay, in the world of business, people get so excited about quarterly earnings results. They beat analyst expectations. They didn't live up to analyst expectations. The, the price of the company's stock kind of like rises and falls quarter by quarter. It's a very narrow, near look at the total picture of how something is happening. But we live life like that, and we do church like that very often. For example, you are having a quarterly results perspective. If I come up to you and I ask you the question, how are you doing? And the answer to that question is contingent upon the moment of how you're feeling. How are you doing? Well, <laughs> things are pretty good right now. I can't look and identify anything that's bad in my life. I'm having a great quarter right now. But what happens when the quarter goes down? You lose a job, or your marriage starts falling apart, or you receive a difficult diagnosis. Is your faith tethered to what's happening quarter by quarter? And your overall sense of well-being and emotional health as a person, but more deeply, your spirituality? Does it kind of rise when it's good and crash when it's bad? Sometimes we bring this mindset into church, and all those seats are full. God's blessing this place. Oh boy, seats are empty. God must have moved down to Cape Faith or one of the other churches close by. Now, we love all the churches, and we're not in competition with one another, but we create this Christian subculture that gives us the impression that if I have enough faith and if you just believe the right things about God, and if you just pray more, and if you just employ the right strategy, well, then you can't help but having a good quarter after quarter after quarter. Really? Is that how it works? Do you see that in the Bible? You see, I look at God, and God's like the CEO that is not interested in the stock price. <laughs> he doesn't care what the stock price is doing right now. You know, God is not fretting as he looks at the state of the world in this moment. Oh boy, you know, some of these societal cultural issues, they've got me really concerned. I'm worried about this. Look at the young people, the youth. They're not really involved in church right now. I'm scared for that. You know, people in general just seem less interested in church. I had better do something proactively to prevent that. I need all these people in my churches. No, he's not looking at the world from the two-year outlook, the 10-year outlook. God is looking at the world through the lens of eternity. He's the one that set all these plans and motions. He knows what he's about. So Isaiah is asking God, how long, how many bad quarters, Lord? And God is saying, Isaiah, 
I've got to demolish some things in you. You think this nation and this people are the greatest source of hope for the world? Well, I'm about to turn your expectations upside down. Look at verse 13 again, and it sounds pretty bad, pretty ominous, though a tenth remain. So you have this picture in your mind of a city, and it's just leveled, there's rubble, and even if there's a tenth of that city left, he's going to reduce it down even further than that. Now the image shifts, and we're looking at a tree stump. And it says the holy seed is in the stump. So think about this image. There's a stump. There's a seed on the stump. And ask yourself the question, what kind of potential does an acorn have? Boy, you start thinking an acorn could become an oak tree. <laughs> That's not enough potential, y'all. Acorns can become forests. You see the promise that God is giving us of this coming Messiah? He's saying, listen, Isaiah, I've got to utterly destroy your worldview so that you can be ready for something far better. Your worldview, it's like Cape Cod Forest. There are scrub oak and scrub pine, and it is not cool. I've got to tear this thing down so that I can replace it with something far better. The truth is this, if God brings the pain of demolition into your life, and I suggest he probably has many times, it's always coupled with the limitless potential of renovation. He always has that in his mind. So how do I as a believer open myself up to God's renovating process? Here's the application. It's three simple words. The first word is Listen, do you hear God in your life? Do you pause enough to hear God in your life? We live in this distracted, fast-paced, always moving, fragmented world where it's like, I've just got to be about the next thing. Here's the thing. That's why you're not hearing God. Slow down. Meet with him. Really listen. Don't tell him what you want. Ask him what he wants for you. The second word is confession. Deeply rooted in Christian practice. It comes with the word repentance in mind. We hear the word repent and we think of a hellfire brimstone sermon. We think, oh, this is highly condemning, highly judgmental. The word repent, you know what it means? Change your mind. Change your mind. God, I thought that I was right. I thought that my plans were brilliant. I'm coming to the realization that I had it all wrong. I'm changing my mind about this. The third word is grow. This is an active faith decision. You know, a, a plan cannot materialize until I take a first step, until I intend to do something about it. So if I get stuck in the process of confess, I'm just constantly circling back to God, tell him all the bad things I've done. But if I really want to change my mind, I have to think, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to trust God to change me? That's your three words, church. 
Listen, confess, grow. Lord God, we thank you for the powerful promise of Scripture of renovation. And Lord, I, I want to begin with myself and ask you to renovate me. And I know that we're talking about dangerous prayers right now this month. That's a dangerous prayer because I am opening myself up to your demolition work. And Lord, I pray that for these people in this room. We don't want to run away from that. Lord, to get that kitchen we've always dreamed about or that bathroom, there has to be the process of knocking down walls and in replacing those things with something better. Do that work that only you can do in us so that we can be the people on mission for this Cape Cod. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.